Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. Hello. Welcome to this episode of the Mental Health Professionals Network presenting In Conversation With. My name is Ruth Vine. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm based in Melbourne, but at the present time I'm employed by the Commonwealth Department of Health as the Deputy Chief Medical Officer in Mental Health. And I'm joined by Jonathan Wells, who's a cousin of mine, a social worker based in the United Kingdom. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Ruth. And I'm delighted to be here for this conversation. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's going to be good. Um, I'm looking forward to our conversation today because over the years, Jonathan, you and I have had um, various times when we've been on holiday together and we've explored some of our working life, uh, even though we work in different hemispheres. And and today we're going to talk a bit about what we think is going well, going great, what excites us, um, but also perhaps some of the things that we're less hopeful about. So if you were going to start, I'll get you to start. Um, what, what do you think would excite you at the moment about um, mental health care in Australia, if you know about it, but particularly from your perspective in the United Kingdom, where things are at? Yes, well, I'll just say for the audience um, a little bit about myself, just so they understand where I'm coming from. Um, I'm a social worker by training. I'm retired now, but I've had a 35-year career working in adult mental health in a whole range of roles. So um, I got keen on the idea of working in mental health um, when I was a student. I just thought, what what more interesting thing than working with people whose thoughts and feelings and behaviours were sometimes, let's say, at an extreme. I thought that was just a fascinating whole area, but perhaps more importantly, um, I've, I've always felt that any civilised society can be measured on how well it looks after the most vulnerable people. So that was a huge driver for me, I think, and always has been. So there have been many things I've um, found uh, exciting or very positive through my career. Um, we might want to go back to one or two of those. Um, it was very interesting in the 1990s um, how suddenly... We borrowed three ideas from Australia, early intervention in psychosis, assertive outreach teams, and crisis resolution and home treatment. I mean, that's an interesting story in its own right, but it's, it was a great success. And we had a lot of new funding in those days, the, the noughties, really. So um, that was a very positive experience for me. Um, so um, I'm just still very committed in a variety of voluntary sector roles to um, better mental health care and I think it's a really, it's almost, and people use the word privilege, it's sort of a privilege to be still meeting and getting alongside people with mental health difficulties and their families. So those are some of the positives over, over all those years. Yeah, it's, it, it is fascinating, Jonathan, that, that the UK borrowed some of those ideas and those ideas, I have to say, are still alive in Australia, they're not necessarily alive and well. And I'll, I'll come to some of the things that excite me at the moment. But just before I leave you at that question, if, if you move towards the end of your career, not the end of your, but the end of your when you were working, what were the things then, which would be what, um, two, two years ago, maybe a couple of years ago now, what were the things then that you thought, wow, this is going really well, and this is going to develop into something good? 
Um, well, a couple of things that spring to mind. One goes back a little bit longer, but what we call, I mean, it's full of acronyms, the world of mental health. So it is. And it is. our acronyms in the UK might be different from <laughs> yours. So this may be a problem for us. But anyway, improving access to psychological therapies or IAPT, which um, was has been a massive uh, step forward in the last few years in the UK with very clear and simple standards about how it should be provided and just two or three targets. I don't mind one or two targets as long as they're sensible and not too many of them. Um, even having to demonstrate whether they're effective or not against a, a sort of a measure aiming for 50% effectiveness and very ambitious in the numbers of people who should have received that service each year. It's done as a proportion of everybody who might be diagnosed with depression or anxiety in a given population, which is a huge number. And we now have 25% of all those people are expected to at least be offered that service. So they, they've been so they've been very very. Um, they advertise what they're doing on buses and everything in a very confident way. You know they're looking to help more people. I mean, it is a little bit limited because it's time-limited CBT. I'm having it myself at the moment, so I could... And actually, it's going very well. I, I could easily um, say more about that, but I, I'm benefiting. I'm actually benefiting from that now. You could give us the user's guide to IAPT. What's really interesting, Jonathan, and, and I, I say this a bit for our listeners, we probably have a similar range of types of workforce in mental health. You know, we have psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, OTs, people with lived experience. But 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 in Australia, compared with the UK, we organise that workforce rather differently. And, uh, and so the Australian equivalent of IAPT, perhaps, started back in 2006 as better outcomes and turned into better access, was predominantly psychologists. Whereas I think um, the IAPT started out with a broader workforce um, back at the beginning. But it, but if I was to, this is terrible, isn't it, Jonathan? Because we're going to talk forever. But 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 if I was just to briefly talk about some of the things exciting me at the moment, um, having worked for thirty years, thirty years in in mental health and and seen some of the um, waves of reform, I think I'd say I hope not to. Um, naively or Pollyanna-ish, that there is an interest in reform again and there is an interest in exploring um, not just how people access treatments but also about that how they experience those treatments and how they experience the interventions and that, that sense that you're talking about of, you know, advertising on bus sides of buses and trying to make a, a service as accessible, as effective um, as it can be, I think is... Um, it's just terrific. But but uh, let, let me perhaps, we might come back to this, but let me move a little bit. If, if you were to think about the other side of the coin, the things that bother you about that you've seen, and again, perhaps particularly towards the end of your, your time working um, about mental health care in the UK, what, what, what comes to mind when you flip the coin and think about things that haven't been so successful? And perhaps why? Why do you think it hasn't worked? Well, um, yes, I mean, because I have depression, Ruth, I sometimes find, I find it very easy to talk about the 
let's say the gloomier yeah. side. Well, and I'm, I'm going to I'm going to hold you to time. Then you can't talk. You can't yeah, talk well, that, that's very very therapeutic. So, <laughs> thanks. Um, well, um, there are. I do feel I need to mention access to good, clinically effective, timely mental health care and treatment for the people, let's say, at the heavy end at the, um, of the mental health spectrum. We're all aware of this huge spectrum of mental health challenges. So people with severe mental illness, if you still use that term, um, certainly in the UK um, are finding it extremely difficult to um, just get the help uh, that they that they need. Um, there's some. There've been lots of in Cambridge, where I'm from. I should have said that at the beginning. But in Cambridgeshire, we're we've done. We put. We've tried very hard to bridge this gap. But uh, for GPs, there's a huge amount of wasted effort referring people to a community mental health service, which has the right staff in it to provide the right treatments and. A few years ago, 90% of those people were being uh, sent back again, which was very demoralising for GPs uh, and for patients and their families. So, and since COVID, I mean, we haven't got time to go into the detail of the impact of COVID, but this year, um, yeah, the number of people, the demand uh, has steadily grown and the capacity of, I call it planned mental health care rather than crisis care, the capacity of planned care in community mental health services has gone down for various reasons to do with workforce, etc. So if you just do the maths, it's um, proving impossible to help a lot of people with really quite severe mental health problems, and that's when the families that I hear from pick up the pieces as well as they can. So that's about access. There's rather a lot in that. Well, there is. And in fact, you've touched, just in, in that brief time, you've touched on what I think are at least four of the perennial problems. And, and the, the first thing you touched on was language. You said mental illness, if we can call it that. And, and yet you and I know that there is, a, as you said, a vast spectrum from um, distress, normal distress in abnormal circumstances. I, I think many people in COVID have experienced distress and anxiety, but it's almost a normal reaction to a very abnormal circumstance. And Jonathan, you might not know this about Melbourne, or you might, but we're, we're locked down city and uh, <laughs> we've been stuck in, our, stuck in our homes or our suburbs for a very long time. But yeah, language in, 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 in this area is really important because people talk about mental health and wellbeing as, as being akin to mental illness and psychological distress but they're very different things but but you also talked about the importance of um, making sure that there were services for the people who were most experiencing the most severe kinds of illness and um, uh, one of the one of the things that uh, many listeners to this podcast would be aware of is that there's been a lot of discussion in Australia about a thing called the missing middle pe people falling through gaps in the system of care but, but it's very, very important not to forget, and I would agree with you, the absolute importance for people to be able to access effective, caring, um, available 
um, in treatments and supports, what, whatever their presentation, from the most severe. And, and you also, so you touched on access, which is a bit of a perennial problem in Australia because we've got such different geographic areas as well as different workforces, and, and we might come to that. And, and your last point was carers, and I think um, you're, you're currently working with carers, but, but equally, as we've emphasised people with mental illness or distress or whatever, receiving that support in the community, it's clear that they spend an awful lot of time with their carers and that their carers share a lot of the need to provide those supports from a whole range of, you know, emotional support, financial support, um, you know, housing support, what, 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 whatever. And I, I think remembering just how important it is that carers get support is another really critical part of um, mental health services. But, but thank you, thank you, Jonathan. If, if I was to um, take my turn, as, as, as I said, my, my um, optimism in a way is that we're, that we're going down a path of reform where we will get much greater um, cooperation between different service, service streams and much cooperation between different parts of the workforce. But the, the, the risk of that and the other side of that coin is that we have a very fragmented system. We have lots of different providers, lots of different parts of the system. They don't always work well together. Um, governments often like funding, um, funding particular particular uh, programs without thinking how that program might fit in with the rest of the system of care and uh, and and that's and having two levels of government in Australia as we do between the Commonwealth or federal government and the, and the state and territory governments often compounds that that tendency to fragmentation um, and complexity and that makes the system what what a bit what you were saying people go get referred to the GP the GP refers them somewhere else but that somewhere else, is is uh, is not the right place or, or isn't able to accept them. So, yeah, I um, uh, can you talk a little bit more, Jonathan, about how you see the the workforce because the people listening to this podcast are probably going to be primarily those who work in mental health. And what what did you feel about when you were working as a social worker within that broader um, group, multidisciplinary sort of group of of workforce? Did you feel that was a plus? I certainly did, Ruth. I, um, I very much, I mean, a multidisciplinary team was what we always called it, and I guess it still is. But um, And it just seemed to make sense, both from the professional point of view and patients, that people have a range of needs, and you might as well have a team that can address as many of them as possible, working effectively together. As a social worker, I try to be strong on, you know, housing and employment and homelessness and helping people um, with their financial situations. But I was always very interested in psychiatry and psychology. And so I felt I had a separate identity, but appreciated everybody else's um, roles. And it was just, it seemed to make sense um, when we were responding to the needs of the individuals that came our way. And the politics in the UK tends to separate, well, does separate health services from social services. I, I, there's not time to explain how, but we were, we've been talking for many years about integrating all of that. And indeed this week, politically, we still are talking about it. Um, it doesn't make any, if once you're on the receiving end, 
it doesn't really make much sense to be referred to several huge great separate organizations just to have help with accessing the welfare benefits that you want to or something so it's always a good idea and the, the extra part of that in the last 10 years or so has been peer support workers which in other words people with lived experience um, which is a really positive development um, just very quickly on, on language um, which we haven't got time either to do justice to fully but um, I'm, to, I'm very pleased indeed that everyone is talking at, at least about mental health and what it is and what it isn't I spent many years in my professional life thinking it was a pity that people didn't seem able to talk about it I always find it quite easy to talk about <laughs> but I do feel that the conversation you know having Prince Harry on the front page of the Times talking about EMDR or something is fantastic but it's got us to another level which is whether the level of ignorance and confusion and muddle and misconceptions um, is, is huge so I'm pleased the we're talking about it but we're still struggling to have good uh, sensible calm conversations when we all use the words in, to mean the same thing but I'm, that's sort of going back a bit no but you're absolutely right and it's one of the I mean in a way it's one of the the joys of working in this area that it, we're never short of, of, of a, of a, of a con controversy. We're never short of a, a bit of a debate about what is the right language. I mean, at the moment, there's a lot of criticism of the medical model. Now, as a psychiatrist, I sort of think that that is holistic. It's biopsychosocial, um, and, and it should bring all three, but some people narrow it down to think the medical model just equals a prescription pad. So, so I think language is, is really important, but, but you're right, we, we shouldn't talk more about that today. But, but Jonathan, if you, you, you've sort of touched a little bit on some of the, some of the sort of hopes you might have, but, but if you now, having, having had all the experience that you had during your career and your current experience um, working with carers as, as well, Jonathan, as your own experience of experiencing both depression and treatment for depression, what what would your aspirations be not just not for yourself but but for the the whole mental health system in the uk what you know what would your nirvana be um yes well i hear a great many things um i mean to try and organize this in my mind the i have i have a high high hopes of let's call it the dialogue that exists now between people with lived experience and mental health professionals as I, I'm a bit worried about it as well um, but just to say I mean what we do in Cambridgeshire and it's often me actually sitting around a sort of virtual table representing I tend to have the public perspective that's me speaking on behalf of you know, half a million people in Cambridgeshire, which is a bit ridiculous in a way, although we do try and involve a lot, we involve a lot more people. Um, but just making that, um, I, I, and I do sort of training with people with lived experience to help them um, be as influential as they can be. So if it's, an, if it's just antagonism or 
you know, unconstructive criticism. Um, it's just not going to work. So we try and have an attitude of being good influencers. In other words, speaking up strongly and being true to with people we represent, but in a calm and constructive way to actually uh, and to have credibility. So every week I'm involved in those sorts of conversations, trying to um, help people um, develop influencing skills, actually, rather than just shouting. I mean, I, I, although I do sometimes feel that frustration myself, but I try and I try and monitor it and use it constructively. So if we could just get that right, um, I think it's very, very fertile ground, the idea of um, both sides of the same coin. I've got plenty of examples about the professionals having a good understanding of things from their perspective and um, the people that I work with bringing the other perspective and then we fully understand what the problems might be and how we can resolve them. So I'm just coming back to that whole debate saying I do have, I'm very, I'm hopeful that we can really make the most of that and end up with, well actually more of a consensus about what good mental health and good mental health care actually looks like. I mean it can be fun arguing but it, it's a we need to get beyond the arguing stage and um, not, it, it, as you, it is a contested area, perhaps it always will be, but I think we can have a much better consensus. Um, I have a huge aspiration in the UK for us to achieve community mental health services for people with severe mental health conditions, which can be provided when somebody needs them and also um, achieve that biopsychosocial approach that you mentioned, Ruth. In other words, um, can continue for as long as someone might need them. Uh, an awful lot of our services in the UK are time limited, which is okay up to a point, but it's very hard to find that needs-based service. And the other key ingredient of that for me is that at the heart of that service is some sort of good relationship between a mental health person who may well be a peer support worker and the the customer. So that's a very big and simple statement, but it is quite hard to find sometimes nowadays. It, it is indeed. And I, I'm unfortunately in, in Australia, I could say the same, particularly for those who either can't afford the private sector or who are in a place where um, that sort of broad range is, is not available. If, if I was going to talk about my aspirations, you, you've put that so nicely because because what you've really highlighted is the person, the person at the centre um, and 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 also the relationship, the, the importance of the engagement and that engagement being for as long as as re required in a, in a way and a place that best meets that person's needs. And, you know, that, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can top that, Jonathan, but, but if I was... To add to it, I'd, I'd say that my aspiration is also about workforce and having having really having people who really want to work in this area and who feel that they are rewarded by working in this area. And I don't just mean 
financially. I, I, I think sometimes um, in, in Australia, some of our amenities aren't, aren't good for either the worker or the person receiving treatment and care. And it, it changes the morale and, and often um, leads people to feel that they're not able to bring their best self to their work because they're not working in an environment that nurtures their best self and, and provides them with that support. So um, it, it, my aspiration would be to have a better joined up system, most important in Australia, staffed by people who want to be there and who feel rewarded by being there and who, but a continuation of what is good in what you mentioned before, that multidisciplinary team and that respect that people have for each other's areas of expertise or specialisation and what they bring to that um, and, and to feel that they're able to do that, that they're able to bring their skill and their full scope, if you like, full scope of practice, um, and that uh, and and that that uh, is provided to people. But and some of that is about money, but it's it's not all about money. It's it's also about how people work. And your other comment, I think, was about that sort of reaching consensus. Um, and and I, again, I I, I I hope that where this is an evolving conversation as you say sometimes a contested space but hopefully we can reach consensus Jonathan you're you you worked in that in mental health for a long time as as have I if you were to sort of I guess reach back to your younger self and think that you were going to start in the mental health area now would, would what you know what would you what would you want to be bringing to that work now? If you, if you, if you were a little bright-eyed, bushy-tailed baby social worker, do, do you think um, you'd approach your career in the same way now as you, as you have? That's a good question. Not exactly the same way. I mean, I would still want to have a career in mental health. I, I, I think we've both um, found it uh, very rewarding, as you say, not necessarily financially, but in all sorts of other ways. So I'm proud of what I've done. Uh, I might not even go into social work. It's become very bureaucratic in the UK and very much about rationing resources and finding ways to say, to not help people, actually. Um, although I put that a little bit strongly, because obviously you want a community to look after each other as much as they can. But um, for various reasons, social care has been under so much pressure for a number of years that that it is hard to, for that to be a rewarding job. But um, I would want to bring, I do believe in professional skills, clinical skills, although as we've already touched on, sometimes the word clinical is even seen as less important. It's not less clinical expertise is as important as it ever was, or professional expertise. I'd want to bring that, and I just want to bring curiosity, which I think is crucial in good mental health care, and freshness of approach, and um, optimism. Those are, again, quite obvious things to say, but the climate, even before COVID, it was tough enough um, since COVID, if anything, it's got tougher and I fully understand why staff find it hard to um, keep themselves going in those ways but it's tremendously important work and um, if anything um, you know the 
the importance is only growing. Um, and just touching on workforce, you're absolutely right about the importance of that. The, when we make a fuss in Cambridgeshire, it used to be about funding for mental health, and it's not about funding anymore. There's been quite a lot of money sloshing about, especially on the back of COVID, and quite often we can't use the money to, to because we can't find we can't recruit um, staff. So, um, and that's a big worry. Um, but um, I, I think it there's got to be a way of um, attracting people to working into mental health because it's such an important area we could it is it is thank you I, I mean I, I we haven't really seen where the impact of COVID is going to end you know we're in here in Australia we've we're sort of in the vaccination mode at the moment and as you say COVID has actually resulted in it's resulted in a couple of things I think it's resulted in some light shining on some of the pressures in the health system that pre-existed COVID but it's also brought, I think, a willingness to work in different ways and and highlighted the needs of many, many people for, you know, an avenue to get some support as well as, uh, as we've touched on before, not um, in any way diminishing the, the importance of support for those with really, really sort of, who are very, very distressed and very disabled by, by mental illness. But we'll see how that plays out. And, and again, I, I think it has absolutely brought a focus on the importance of mental health and well-being in how we function perhaps particularly in our young people but um but for all of us so thank you to anyone who's listening to this on this episode of in conversation with and you've been listening to me ruth Bine, and you've been listening to me jonathan wells from the uk and and it isn't it interesting how similar and yet dissimilar our, our um, mental health services are on opposite sides of the, of the world. But we hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I, I, I certainly have, and I hope, Jonathan, I hope you have. Yes, me too. Um, if you want to learn more or, you know, have access to some of the things we're talking about, please go to the landing page of this episode and, and follow the hyperlinks. And you'll find it on the, on the landing page a feedback survey, a link to the feedback survey, and MHPN does value that feedback. So um, please let them know whether you've found the episode interesting, helpful or not. And please be free with any criticism you may have as well. And I hope there will be many other episodes of In Conversation With. Thank you very much for your commitment and your engagement with multidisciplinary person-centred mental health care. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jonathan. Bye. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face -face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 